Welcome to the Basana Health and Wellness Podcast. At Basana Health, we focus on whole body wellness, connecting physical, spiritual, and mental well-being. We are wellness collaborators with our members, and we embrace our community partnerships. Basana Health promotes holistic and functional care while focusing on transformative lifestyle changes. Welcome to our podcast, where you can take a virtual step towards optimizing your own health and wellness. Welcome to the Basana Health and Wellness Podcast, episode number 26. Today we hear from Basana Health and Wellness physician assistant Susan Eichhorst, who talks about all things insulin, with a focus on insulin resistance and how it impacts your health. Listen in, you won't want to miss out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Basana Health and Wellness uh, webinar. My name is Susan Eichhorst. I'm a physician assistant here. And as many of you already know me, and those of you who don't, I'm pretty passionate about hormone optimization and how that helps us feel better today, but also age more gracefully. I have had a couple of webinars in the past, one on bioidentical hormone therapy for both men and women, and another on hormone optimization of the thyroid. And you can reference those in our library if you have a desire to do so. Uh, Today, I'd like to talk about a different hormone, something that most of us don't even consider or think about unless we're talking about diabetes. This hormone is insulin. Insulin is well known to most people. Type 1 diabetics are people that have autoimmune conditions, and they don't make enough insulin to provide breakdown of glucose. And in those cases, those people would actually die without insulin supplementation. Type 2 diabetes, we use insulin for fairly regularly as a prescribed medication in an attempt to improve blood glucose levels. Before we get into the nitty gritty of insulin and why I feel this is such an important hormone to to educate my patients about, I think we need to take, I'd like to take a minute to really consider the state of our health in general throughout the world. You know, we're sick by and large. 40% of us in the world's population is overweight or obese. Nearly 75% of Americans over the age of 20 are overweight or obese. 13% of children, two to five years old are obese already. And nearly 20% of our six-year-old and 19-year-olds have obesity. World obesity rates have nearly tripled in less than 50 years. And prior to 1982, there was not one case of a type two diabetic in an adolescent in the United States, probably worldwide actually. Most of us deal with some chronic conditions or symptoms that we just kind of accept as life fatigue, or my joints hurt, my muscles hurt, I don't sleep well, I have headaches, I have digestive issues, I always feel bloated, skin conditions. And we just accept these as, you know, part of getting older. Also part of getting older is getting some chronic diseases, Alzheimer's or dementia, that's become almost a common place for somebody in their 70s or 80s, cancer, cardiovascular disease, infertility and polycystic ovarian disease in our younger population, and again, obesity, diabetes, arthritis, and non-alcoholic fatty liver. All of these are chronic diseases that because they are so common has become almost the norm to accept that this is what's gonna happen as I get older. I think the other thing that most many of us kind of look at is what's my family history? And I, family history is important. I think it is helpful to know what family genes have been passed down, what things are prominent in the family. But 
consider genetics are what you inherit over the generations through your parents. But epigenetics is how those genes respond to things that you do in your personal behavior. So we now understand through this new science of epigenetics that we can turn genes on and off. We can amplify genes and create good health, or we can create disease, or we can turn them down. We can influence if we gain weight or lose weight. So our family history, to, in my observation, is really just a snippet into what may happen. But there's a saying in functional medicine, you know, genes load the gun, what you do with them and your behavior is what pulls the trigger. So getting back to diabetes and insulin, many of us will spend, you know, get a, an annual laboratory with our doctor and be told, okay, you're not diabetic or not even pre-diabetic. And that is great. This diagram shows where these levels are on our normal uh, continuum of lab tests. So anything over 6.5 on a hemoglobin A1C is considered diabetes. But if something is less than that, you may be pre-diabetic and certainly not diabetic if you're under 5.7. Just to refresh, a hemoglobin A1C is a blood test that we use and it monitors the amount of damage to the hemoglobin in the red blood cell over the course of three months. The life of the red cell red blood cell is about three months. So that's a good marker for us because we can give a percentage of how many of these cells are, are affected by too much glucose in the body. These are really good things to know, but it's insulin that we really also need to be concentrating on because it's now understood that you may never become diabetic or you may not become diabetic until another 20 or 30 years, but insulin can have an interplay of how your chronic health will develop. Insulin is a hormone that's secreted by your pancreas, uh, which is in your abdominal cavity, in response to eating any sugars or starches. It's the hormone that's responsible for shuttling that sugar from your bloodstream, driving it into the cell so that we can use it for energy. And this also protects having high blood glucose levels in your blood vessels, which can be damaging to tissues in and of itself. Now, after we've eaten something that's sugary or starchy, then that insulin should go back down to normal after eating, but frequently that remains elevated in the bloodstream. And now we have a much better understanding that actually high levels of insulin are just as damaging to tissue as high levels of glucose. So insulin is really an important hormone. You know, we want our insulin to respond and raise up to the level that it needs to, so it can push that glucose into the cell, but every single cell in your body and every tissue needs glucose for energy. We'll get into that a little bit later, but we can use some ketones as well. And some people are familiar with the ketogenic diet, but right now talking about glucose, your brain loves glucose for energy and for neuron growth. You know, your ears, your heart, your liver uses it and storage stores fat in the liver at times. Our testicles and ovaries need glucose for normal sex production, sex hormone production. And so insulin is something that we will die without, but we've gotten away from understand or haven't really understood how important insulin is to keep at good low levels after eating. This is just a little diagram I thought I'd, I'd throw in here to help understand how these hormones work. Today, we're talking about insulin, that's the main character here, but all hormones work in the same way, more or less. There's a lock and key perspective to it. Uh, glucose is taken into the 
bloodstream, through our food, circulating around, stimulates that pancreas to make insulin. Insulin's the little spaceship looking thing over here on the left. And then it fits into that receptor like a lock and key. And that opens the channel in the cell that allows that glucose to get into the cell. This is how most hormones do work as well. The big thing that is important with respect to talking about insulin is then looking at insulin resistance. This is when our bodies become dysregulated in the metabolism from eating too much sugar and starch. The insulin remains high after we've eaten, after it's pushed that glucose into the cell or other tissues like your abdominal cavity, that's where it tends to store as fat, not the fat you can pinch on your belly, the fat you can't touch around your liver and your, your colon and your heart. That's very highly inflammatory fat, and that's where insulin likes to store extra fat when it can't put that glucose into the cell. The liver can accumulate fat from this process, and even fat cells themselves can continue to grow. Over time, with having these high insulin levels, the cells become desensitized to it, and they just stop responding. This is not uncommon in other aspects, too. You keep hearing loud music in the back, eventually you're going to tune it out. Insulin then becomes elevated to such levels that it's also driving its own chronic diseases. So the average American eats about 152 pounds of sugar a year. They also tend to consume around 130 pounds of flour a year. This is mostly wheat flour. That equates to about a pound of each of these highly inflammatory foods per day per American. Now, of course, that's not everybody in that Certainly may not be a lot of people in my, my cohort here because they know that they're trying to take care of their, or make some changes to their health, but that's the average American. And we do see that in our obesity levels. So sugars and starches, once they become in these amounts, they become poison and they are really at the root of almost all chronic disease. Just cutting out refined sugar and eliminating processed wheat will probably eliminate about 90% of symptoms and roughly the same amount of chronic disease for many, many people. So I just wanted to include this. This is just another illustration to show you how that insulin fits into the little receptor, opens that glucose channel, allows the sugar to get into the cell. And then when that's disrupted, all this glucose and extra insulin is staying in the bloodstream. And this is really the conventional model of insulin resistance. This can be so important is because then in type two diabetics, what we're trying to do is lower the blood glucose in the bloodstream, making this assumption that the cell is starving and that it can't get that energy because it's being inhibited because of the resistance. So what is traditional to do is to give more insulin, raise that insulin level and force that into the cell. That's not been working. You know, if that had been working, people that are type two diabetics that are on insulin should get back to a normal weight if they're utilizing their, meta if they're metabolizing their glucose in an effective way. But new theories are emerging that are thinking, you know, maybe we need to look at this a little differently. Maybe it's actually that the, the cell is not starving, that actually it's an overflow. It's already filled up. It can't take in any more, any more glucose. So the more sugar, the more refined flours I eat, that cell's already filled. The body is resistant to insulin. It's got this blood glucose problem that it's got to solve. So that's where it starts to filter that glucose and convert it into fat, again, in the abdominal cavity, in the liver, and 
in the fat cells themselves. So now we're starting to think, you know, maybe type two diabetes is not being helped at all by adding insulin. In fact, we may be just throwing a little gasoline on the fire because you add more insulin, you've then increased your, your need for sugar to balance out the insulin. It's not getting into the cell and these people continue to get bigger and sicker. I pulled this little busy slide up here because again, I want to impress on us that really diabetes is not a good disease and it has a lot of bad consequences. You know, I spent about five years of my early, early career as a retinal photographer and the devastations of, of diabetes is just horrible as far as uh, retinopathy, breaking blood vessels in the eyes and, and really devastating people. I saw more type one diabetics at that point. This was back in the early eighties, but you saw enough type two diabetics back then as well. Now this is a rampant disease. Di type two diabetics at the end stage also get kidney failure and they suffer from neuropathy, which can be very painful because of it's a neurological condition where the nerves are just inflamed. So that's where we've been concentrating is really let's find people that are diabetic and pre-diabetic and help them out with that, put them on a medicine. But I want to bring to the light to light that really we need to start concentrating decades sooner. What's happening with insulin? Is this person hyperinsulinemic? If that insulin remains high, it then goes into insulin resistance syndrome. And as you can see down line, it's a major relationship with hypertension, stroke, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which many people equate as a gynecological condition. It happens to have polycystic ovaries in about 50% of the women that develop this. But honestly, 50% of them never have cysts. They never have infertility issues, but they absolutely have insulin resistance. PCOS is insulin resistance, period. That's why people get better when they go on a medication called metformin, because it helps regulate that insulin and their blood glucose levels. But also high insulin levels are associated again with this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cancer, and even sleep apnea. So we really need to keep concentrating on how do we get our insulin levels down? The prevalence of insulin resistance is just unbelievable. It's estimated that roughly 85% of Americans, uh, adults, have insulin resistance. The CDC brings to light that one out of five 12 to 18 year olds now have prediabetes, which is insulin resistance, when one out of four 19 to 34 year olds have insulin resistance or prediabetes. These are very impactful numbers. These are things that set us up that we're not healthy to begin with. If we develop a virus or we have some kind of a horrible detrimental insult, we may not recover as well as somebody who is insulin sensitive. And these are why this is so important to start checking these and to be mindful and to know you can change things. You don't really need to get a lab test to find out if you're insulin resistant. You can just make some changes and bring that down and avoid it or reverse it. Half of all adults in Mexico, China, and India, these are large countries, are insulin resistant. And more than a third of Europeans and Canadians also suffer from insulin resistance. Again, Insulin resistance, most common health disorder worldwide. But it doesn't seem like many people are talking about it. And that's why I'm here today to bring you up to date. So as I mentioned, we can do some laboratory work. Fasting insulin is a great marker. Um, we like to see levels well under six on a fasting insulin level. Fasting glucose has a bigger, wider range. 
65 to 99, really you're probably better off in that 65, 70, 70 ish range than living right up at 99 all the time. The hemoglobin A1C that I mentioned, less than 5.7% is where we want that. More like five would probably be desirable. The triglyceride to HDL ratio. This is a nice, quick, and easy test that anybody can do from their past labs. Take your triglyceride number divided by your HDL number, and that ratio will give you an impression if you have insulin resistance. Some experts will say anything less than two is okay. People I follow like to be a little stricter on that only because we really want things optimized. I don't want a little bit of dementia when I get older. I don't want a little bit of chronic disease. I want to be disease-free. So really we're looking at levels that are less than 1.5 is really what we're looking at as ideal. And then liver function tests are so impactful because they can help glean out if there's um, some elevation in liver functions, this ALT-AST in case you're looking at old labs. Um, we want those well within range and we certainly don't want them out of range. For females, I like to see them at the low end of the range, more around 20. Um, and because we're a lot more sensitive to outside toxins and whatnot. But if they're elevated, that would warrant that you probably have some fatty liver and an uh, ultrasound would be helpful to obtain at that point. I wanna get back to fasting insulin levels because this is where so many people get confused. And I will say actually most of my colleagues get confused on this or just don't know. You know, when we're in medical school, myself, PA school, we're really taught to look at labs, but we're looking at them from a um, normal or abnormal perspective. And, and that's great. I, I respect that people want to be normal. Uh, most of my patients and myself, I want to be optimized. So if you're only looking at lab values, if you get your labs done through Quest, which is a very reputable lab, we use them all the time, they're comfortable by saying your fasting insulin level is just fine if it's less than 19.6. LabCorp gives you a range, 2.6 to 24.9. Really, we want these more or less than six, as I said. And actually, the lower, the better. I mean, I've talked to a number, I've heard from a number of colleagues in their webs, webinars and um, lectures that I've attended, that they like to see their insulin levels around one, two, or three. You know, you don't need insulin when you don't need it. You need it when the glucose comes on board. So you've got to be able to respond to glucose, but you don't want that insulin to respond when that's not, when it's not needed. So lower is better. And just be cautious if you're looking at labs or talking with somebody who's just not familiar with looking at optimization, that lab values are normal. And I think this is a good time to interject something that I bring up pretty frequently with my patients in the office. You know, lab values are really based on a population. They are not based on optimization. Regrettably, they're not the most healthy and optimized of people in that population. So it's a generalized population range. And we do tend to accept, hey, are you healthy? Sure, I don't have any chronic diseases. I haven't been diagnosed with anything. I feel okay. I think I'm healthy. And that's where these levels come from. But when you whittle them way down, anything less than 19.6 if I'm living with an insulin level at 18, I am predestined more than likely to become diabetic if I don't do something about that. And that is very impactful. So just kind of always keep that in mind. What labs are we talking about? What values are we talking about? And are we talking normal or optimal? So why do we focus on glucose and not the insulin? Well, that goes way back. 
you know, much like much of medicine, we kind of keep building upon what we know, but sometimes we build on the wrong foundation. So the ancient Greeks way back 3000 years, they noted that, hey, some of our people pee a lot, very high increased urination. And then sometime later in India, the writings were noted that some of the people's urine attracted bees. And out of these two findings, we developed the name diabetes mellitus. This means to pass through in diabetes and mellitus as honey sweet. This got the establishment, established thought pattern pretty early that the whole disease process was due to these high sugar levels. They must be, if it's, if it's excreted in the urine and we're, we see this, what we call polydipsia, that must be due to this high glucose level in the bloodstream. And we followed that path all the way down into modern medicine, right into making many medications that reduce blood glucose levels. And there's now even medications that increase the capacity of the pancreas to make more insulin. Then we started giving patients insulin. But we re what we really see in these patients is we may see a decrease in blood glucose levels, but we're not necessarily seeing an improvement in their health. They may still go on and develop retinopathy, nephropathy. So really, we've got to keep thinking outside that box. And then lastly, probably one of the more important things, unfortunately, is glucose is really easy and cheap to measure. You can do a little finger stick. You only need a single drop of blood. You can do it discreetly. You can now put a glucose monitor on. And I, I think those are important as well, but it's really easy to monitor glucose. It's a little more expensive. There was certainly a lot more expensive to monitor insulin. It is not that expensive anymore. We don't monitor insulin like we do glucose on a daily basis, but through a laboratory, it's fairly inexpensive to do a fasting insulin test. So what are these signs and symptoms that you may have insulin resistance? Those little annoying skin tags that some people may develop. They, they just look like a little, you can almost play with them. Those are an absolute uh, sign of insulin resistance. Something called acanthosis nigricans. This is a skin condition. It's kind of a black, brown, velvety hyperpigmentation of the skin. Very common in the back of the neck where there's a fold uh, in the elbows, on the knuckles, under the arms. Uh, this is an absolute, what we call pathognomonic uh, sign of insulin resistance. Uh, acne is highly associated with high insulins, high levels of insulin in the blood. Uh, visceral fat, as I talked about, and obesity. Now, not all overweight people are insulin resistant. There are some that can do well with glucose and they actually have good insulin sensitivity. But as a generalized statement, most people that are overweight, that definitely people that carry their weight inside their abdominal cavity um, and that are morbidly obese, these patients all have insulin resistance. And do consider you can be skinny fat. You can have a fairly normal body habitus you don't look overweight, you might look like you carry a couple extra pounds, but where you're storing that fat, again, is in the abdominal cavity. That is where those are very highly inflammatory fat cells. They respond very differently than the fat that you can pinch outside your body and really make us much more immune unstable or imbalanced because the immune response to visceral fat is very inflammatory. And this is one of the reasons why it is so serious. Again, another sign is having PCOS. Hair loss can be associated with insulin resistance and absolutely sugar and carb cravings. 
when your insulin is high, it's looking for glucose. Now, the glucose may be high too, but in insulin resistance, you may not, you're not diabetic necessarily. You may have normal levels of blood glucose. That's what we keep monitoring. Yeah, Mrs. Smith, you look great. Your blood glucose is 99. Your hemoglobin A1C is 5.6. Look at that. You're not pre-diabetic. But if you have these high insulin levels and low blood glucose levels, that insulin is looking for something to push into that cell. So it's gonna make your body crave more sugar and carbohydrates. So what do we do? If we can control our insulin levels, we can avoid most chronic diseases. I love these kind of statements. This means I get to do something about it. I get to make these changes. I get to change my body. I get to help offset my chronic disease, reverse my chronic disease, and prevent any chronic disease. So what spikes insulin? Processed starches and refined sugars. I know I'm a broken record. I say this every day. I know we all like these foods. These foods are designed for you to want them. They are designed for you to crave them. They are designed so that you want to eat the whole bag of that snack, not just the serving size that they say is in there. So really these foods are killing us. Dairy can spike your, your insulin levels, and especially if it's low fat. Our body loves fat, but we have gotten into a low fat craze. Fortunately, we're coming back out of that. It really upset the apple cart in our world. So if you're going to eat dairy, which I know most of us do, and it's not the healthiest food, I'm not a fan of milk. That is not a great food for us, but absolutely get full fat cheeses, fruit juices, Fruit juices are just mainlining glucose, straight into the bloodstream, insulin spikes. It's a terrible way to start your day. Glass of, glass of orange juice and a bowl of cereal. Cereal and milk and juice. Yep, now you just set yourself up for insulin through the day, high glucose levels. You're going to be craving all day. Your brain's not going to work. Not a great way to start. And then monosodium glutinate, which is in so many different foods and many people respond to, but this will also raise insulin levels. It's there as a flavor enhancer. Maybe something I don't need if my food tastes good already. So what else affects insulin? High stress levels. High stress levels increase your adrenaline and cortisol. We've all heard this and it's true. Okay, people inside are our body responds no differently than there's a saber-toothed tiger um, chasing me. My adrenaline goes up, my cortisol goes up. That allows me to run like the wind, get into my cave, get safe, and both of those hormones come back down. That's not how we live our lives these days, and especially not the last almost two years. We are all living in a very high state of stress, emotional stress, stress, psychological stress with a lot of fear, true loss because of all the people that have died in this pandemic. And I would venture to say most of us were pretty stressed out back in 2019 before all this started. We kind of thrive on it and we get used to it, but it honestly is killing us. So we really need to learn to offset those stress levels somehow uh, so that we can reduce that adrenaline and cortisol, specifically the cortisol. Low levels of hormones, estradiol, and especially once we go through menopause, that can trigger insulin resistance and low levels of testosterone, especially for men will trigger insulin resistance. A suboptimal thyroid, 
you know, so many physicians and practitioners are still not up to date with how to manage thyroid. Thyroid is not as cut and dry as get your TSH checked. It's normal. Everything's fine. Go on. You can have a very, very normal, very normal, uh, low looking TSH and have a T3 that's not even in the normal range. Your metabolism is not up to snuff. So suboptimal thyroid levels are controversial to my other doctors, not from what I continue to learn and have absolutely everything to do with how the other hormones work in your life. And then a sedentary lifestyle, you know, even a hundred years ago, people walked to the store and they, many people were laborers. They worked, they, they were physically active much of the time. And now so many of us spend time in front of our computers or we're sitting at a desk. You know, I have the luxury of a stand-up desk, which is great, but I can't stand up to see my patient unless they want to stand up and I'm okay with that. But usually we're going to sit for that. Um, most of us spend most of our time seated these days. And we now understand that a sedentary lifestyle, sitting at work in front of your computer, sitting at home in front of the TV, these are detrimental to our health, just as if I'm a cigarette smoker. They are that impactful. So just get up and take a little walk. Even that will be helpful. So now I want to talk about solutions because this is where we get to do something. You are not destined for many things at all. There are some few genetic outliers that may really impact what my long-term outcome will be. But even as I said earlier, even those are probably controlled with what I do in my lifestyle. First thing you want to do is get moving. These large muscles in our legs, they are awesome to burn glucose. So go out and take a brisk walk and preferably after your meal, because that way you're straining those muscles. They're, they're active. They're pulling more glucose in. That's a good reservoir, a good sink, as we say, to pull that glucose out of your bloodstream. Once that happens, then your insulin comes back down and then eat whole foods not the grocery store, but if you want to shop there, that's fine. But eat whole foods, only shop the perimeter of the, the store, you know, get away from processed foods. I recognize how busy we are. We do have to learn to eat. I'm sorry, we have to learn to cook. And, and really that way, you know what goes into everything you eat. There are some good packaged products, but please start looking at food labels. You want to get rid of your processed oils. Make sure there aren't any artificial sweeteners in there. I'll go over a couple that aren't so bad in another slide. Um, if you can't pronounce something in that ingredients or kind of the catchphrase is if there's more than four or five ingredients in there, you probably don't want to eat that and find better solutions. You know, go to the nut flowers for your crackers you know, look for cauliflower crust instead of wheat crust, or um, yeah, wheat crust. And do be cautious. I'm a big advocate of gluten-free for many people. That's a whole different topic that I can bring to the forefront and I will in the future. But just going gluten-free and using gluten-free products that are processed, regrettably, they all have processed rice and processed potato flour, tapioca flour, high starches still. So Getting back to a whole food diet, you're eating more vegetables, grass-fed meat, wild-caught fish, pasture-raised eggs and chickens, because you don't want to eat anything that the chicken or the meat ate that you don't want to eat, because that's what's happening. We need to optimize our hormones. Again, this comes back to testosterone, because testosterone loss results in insulin resistance. 
and replacing testosterone improves that sensitivity. That's because it increases your muscle mass. It means muscles need more glucose, so it improves your metabolism. The more muscle you build over time, the more your metabolism improves, and you're even burning some fat while you sleep because that muscle's more active. Estrogens help maintain insulin sensitivity. That's why so many women will start to notice or be told that they have prediabetes once they've hit menopause. Some of this is once we lose our estrogens naturally through menopause, we replace them with a more inflammatory form of estrogen called estrone, and we replace it with more cortisol, and cortisol lends itself to insulin resistance. So hormone replacement therapy with estradiol improves that insulin sensitivity. And again, I'm just going to hammer it home. Optimizing your thyroid levels also improves your metabolism. Makes you feel a lot better too. Intermittent fasting become a very big buzzword these days. I'm a fan of it, although I admit I don't do it as faithfully as I probably should. But I have gotten in a much better habit of not eating after 7, 7.30 at night. Intermittent fasting is really based upon the fact that we were never designed to eat multiple food or meals a day. You know, there was a notion that came out sometime in the 90s, maybe, that we should all be eating like six meals a day um, so that we don't have a decrease in our blood glucose level. That's just not true. You know, physiologically, we are designed to go through periods of famine. Well, it's not three months, but that could be three days. And if we didn't have these opportunities to make something called ketones that our brain can work on and work with and gives us energy, then our species would have died out tens of thousands of years ago. So intermittent fasting is really looking at a fasting window, whether that be 14 hours, 16 hours, maybe even a 24-hour water fast. There are lots of resources on how to do these, but the science is solid that your insulin will come down and also you will see a resolution in visceral fat specifically. It's great. The other side of that coin with intermittent fasting is looking at a time-restricted eating pattern. So this is really restricting your eating to a six to eight hour period during the day. And that way you may fast up until, you know, black coffee with some butter or ghee in it in the morning. That's a bulletproof coffee that is not breaking a fast because there's no glucose in there. And then just eating sometime between maybe noon and six. And then you do that again. Again, this is not perfect for everybody, but these are some small solutions that everybody can try or kind of fine tune for themselves. I'm going to keep hammering at home. We've got to get rid of these processed foods and refined sugar. They are really just garbage. They are full of artificial sweeteners. They are full of artificial uh, colorings, pretty much based on four major products. That's wheat, soy, corn, and sugar. And just eliminating these foods alone will totally offset your outcome. And then following a ketogenic diet, which is high in fat, low in carbohydrates, it's actually getting your carbohydrates more from your vegetable sources, but a ketogenic diet puts you into that state where your body and your liver are making these ketone bodies, which are able to be broken down in the the system and utilized as energy. I mentioned earlier a continuous glucose monitor, and I think this is a great tool. It can be really impactful for those people that aren't sure which foods spike their glucose levels. So it's a little device. It actually has a little needle in it. It can be put on a butt. It can be put on an arm into the fat, 
and then it's read on an app or a separate monitor. And when you eat something, then it will give you a readout of how high your glucose goes. And you may be able to find out, hey, when I eat oatmeal that everybody says is healthy for me, that spikes my glucose, oh my gosh. Whereas for the next person, it may not affect them at all. Sweet potatoes can be the same thing. You know, we've got all these healthy foods and they are, but for some individual people, they really may not be that healthy. So a continuous glucose monitor can be acquired out of cash, pocket through your FSA. Many insurance policies may pay for that. I don't know what their parameters are. It's a, it may be something that somebody wants to look into. As I mentioned for myself, one of the best things that I can recommend for everybody is quit snacking after dinner. I am notorious for this. I love popcorn. It's not a good food. I am not endorsing it, but it is a guilty pleasure of mine every so often. But really, I and finding myself not snacking after dinner so much more frequently. I feel like I sleep a little better. I get drowsier earlier in the evening, which I want. I mean, earlier being 9, 9.30, so that I actually go to bed at 10.30 or 10 o'clock. And then drink only water or tea after that time frame. You know, you're, you don't have to be fasting, fasting, but do get some water in you. And then exchange your refined sugar. There are some options. I still don't endorse a lot of them in quantity, but coconut sugar tastes the same. You can cook with it and it's a great alternative. Monk fruit and natural stevia, all of these have much lower glycemic indexes and are good substitutes as sweeteners. And then eliminate all processed flour, but nut flours are an option. So almond flour, I like to make my own nut milk when I want it. And then I dry in the oven, the pulp, and then I can always break that down a little bit into a little finer powder so that I can mix that and make something out of that for nut flour. But you can also find almond flour, coconut flour, cassava flour. There's a lot of options out there. So what are our takeaways today? Not being diabetic is awesome. It's great, but it's not enough. Insulin resistance is avoidable and it's rampant. I mean, we've got to all be concerned about this. When I started on my health journey, this was back in about 2008, 2010. I had my insulin checked through a functional medicine doc here in town, and it was running around 11 to 13. And according to, to Quest, that's normal. But according to what I learned now, that's too high. It now, my insulin level now is around three when I tested for fasting. Family history is only a little red flag to say, hey, you should be aware of this. This runs in your family. There may be a genetic predisposition, but it also may be behavioral on why those genes respond the way they do. That is not your outcome. I want that to be your warning though. You know, if you have a lot of dementia in your family, please be mindful of that. That is frequently avoidable. I plan to bring that webinar to the table in the future to talk about ways to avoid dementia and Alzheimer's and even ways to reverse it because this is brand new. It is revolutionary. It is powerful and it's working. So we'll talk about that another time, but do know your family history, but don't be too scared with it. And then you do not need a prescription to live a better lifestyle, but you may need your professional to help you decrease medications. If you are on blood pressure medications, if you're already on diabetic medications, a statin drug, even antidepressants, many of these do need to be weaned off in a stepwise fashion. And you can start today. 
go ahead. I guess you can't start this because we're already up, but tomorrow morning, drink a full glass of filtered water upon awakening. This already gets the juices flowing, get some hydration into those cells that have been depleted for the past, hopefully seven, eight hours and gets things started. Commit to drinking only calming tea. Chamomile tea is a great option or filtered or mineral water. A little bit of apple cider vinegar can can be put in that to help with digestion. It's got all sorts of great benefits after seven o'clock at night. And then check yourself to see, are you really hungry before you break your fast in the morning? Are you just eating because you always eat at eight o'clock? You may not need to. If you're not hungry, wait a little bit. And then please be wise in which foods you choose to nourish your body and to break your fast. If you're fasting for 15 hours and then you have a bagel, you have not done your body any good. In fact, you may have even done more harm because now you have this huge influx of glucose all at once when the body was nice and quiet, not healthy. Tons of references out there, folks. I mean, the nice thing is the people that I continue to follow, functional integrative medicine people, they really just want us to get healthy as a society. We cannot continue with the burden of sickness in our world. We can't support it. You know, we can't have most of our GPN going to um, to healthcare, to sick care. So please know there's tons of books out there. I really appreciate everything that Dave Asprey brings to the table. He developed the Bulletproof Coffee craze, uh, which I still do. I've been doing that for about four years now. I put a huge about a tablespoon of grass-fed butter in my coffee in the morning, a little bit of ghee, some MCT oil. I blend it in a Vitamix and it just blends up into a little frothy serving of a great fat to get started with. He's written extensively about different ways to improve your health as you get older and really maintain health if you've already got it. The book I've been recommending of his lately is called Fast This Way. And he has done a great job of showing how to fast, how to get into it, even some differences between why why men and women fast differently and why they want to look at that. And then over on the right, that's Dr. Mark Hyman, primarily Benjamin Bickman. I slipped in there as well. He's written all about insulin resistance. It's a little more of a nerdy book. Mark Hyman is a functional medicine who writes extensively about health and wellness and just different ways to get into that mode of health. So you can look into those. And then I like to listen to podcasts and webinars these days. I can do this on the drive to work while I'm in the kitchen cooking. Dr. Mark has a great podcast with all sorts of different topics and experts that come on, very easy to listen to, really relatable, enough gobbledygook for the practitioners out there that are learning, but really breaks it down really well for the layperson as well. And then Dr. Jill up here in the upper right, she's actually a local functional medicine practitioner out in Louisville. She has a great Facebook page. She's got some YouTubes, I think, but she is very accessible as well. And then lastly, I included here the IFM, that's the Institute of Functional Medicine. Again, some of these are a little geared towards practitioners. The more well-versed you become in your own health, you realize we don't speak a different language much anymore. We used to speak a lot in Latin in medicine, and we, we didn't disclose a lot to patients. We kind of gave them just enough to know, hey, you need this pill or you have this disease. But once you start on a path, and if you want to learn more about your body and your health, you are absolutely entitled to that information and you can become just as much of an expert as I am. I'm just a nerd about this. This is my livelihood. This is not just my profession. 
this is what I live and breathe. That's why I become pretty expert with it, but you can too. So please know those options are out there. So do know you get to take charge of your health. You get to build a new body. I just loved this sculpture when I found it. And I just, I'm going to get this to bring into the office. So please do what you can to take care of yourself. It's still going to be a tough winter out there and know that you've got lots of options to make changes. Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you again. The Sauna Health and Wellness Podcast is brought to you by Atagi Plastic Surgery and Atagi Skin Aesthetics. Check us out at atagimd.com. A-T-A-G-I-M-D.com. We offer plastic surgery, skin aesthetics, non-surgical treatments, and hormone therapy. Some of the many things we offer include Botox, dermal fillers, Exilis Skin Tightening, Kybella, Skin Aesthetics, All Therapy, Vanquish Fat Reduction, PRP Hair Restoration, PRP Breast Lift, and Hormone Health. Follow us on our website at atagimd.com to learn about all of our specials and events each month. Some of our specials include monthly discounts off products and services or wrinkle-free Wednesdays. Check us out at atagimd.com.